0: as a children dismissed at junior church and as i put my phone in my pocket i was watching our facebook feed uh you know we're going to look at this passage in romans 9 about talking back to god can can we talk back to god and we want to look at that passage today you'll be pleased to know that next week we only have like three verses in the sermon so in, in addition what five and, and steve's trying to say five minutes what he means, we always—I always add twenty to whatever the people say. Anyways, uh, so Romans nine, we're gonna look at verses nineteen through twenty-nine here in just a minute. But by way of introducing this this sermon, I want to talk about the stars in the sky. What I do? Okay. Yeah, my notes say Romans eight. I was just, just testing you. Okay. The notes say Romans eight, nineteen through twenty-nine. So we're on Romans 9, 19 through 29. So when I was training for my second marathon, when I was training for my second marathon, there were some days that I would get up and at like 4 a.m. and I would go running with a goal to run 20 miles by 7 a.m. So at that point I could I could get to my church office and do the things I needed to do. And it was really neat. I lived in Alliance at the time, and I would run back and forth, and I would calculate in my head, knowing this street's a mile, and that street's another mile, and things like that. As I figured it in my head, then I could plan my work, work my plan, and it was kind of neat having it come into fruition. But what was really neat is I would run towards Alliance, and if you've been to Alliance, you probably know it's just a really, really big city. There's lots of city lights, and it's really dangerous. No, I'm just kidding. But as I ran towards Alliance, even though it's a very small city, you see the city lights, and as I ran south away from Alliance, on many nights, it was just a clear night, and I could just look. look up at the stars and there were many nights where God would just catch me and and speak to me through just looking at the stars I mean it is amazing when you observe the night sky and I would bargain that most of us don't don't do that anymore I mean how often do we allow silence and just and and just sit outside and just think of how amazing God is how amazing God's creation is So let me ask you, do you ever notice how many stars are up there? Have you ever tried counting them? You'd be pretty bored to try to count them. I don't know how people do that. But I read this. The vastness of our universe allows us a glimpse of the night. uh, Allows us a glimpse of the might and majesty of our creator. Philip Yancey gives the the following description to help us appreciate the scale of that universe. If the Milky Way galaxy the size of the entire continent of North America. The whole Milky Way galaxy, just the size of the continent of North America. Our, if that's the case, the whole Milky Way the size of North America, our solar system would fit in a coffee cup. A coffee cup would be our solar system, and the Milky Way would be the size of North America. Even now, two Voyager spacecraft are hurtling toward the edge of the solar system at a rate of 100,000 miles per hour. For almost three decades, they have been speeding away from Earth, approaching a distance of 9 billion miles away. When engineers beam a command to the spacecraft at the speed of light, it takes 13 hours to arrive. It takes 13 hours for the command to go from Earth to the spacecraft Voyager, at the speed of light. Yet, this vast neighborhood of our sun, in truth, the size of a coffee cup, fits along with several hundred billion other stars and their minions in the Milky Way. One of perhaps 100 billion such galaxies in the universe. There are perhaps 100 billion galaxies like the Milky Way in the universe. To send a light speed message To the edge of the universe would take 15 billion years at light speed. I find that amazing. When I think of how big the universe is, it makes me realize how small I am. And yet, many times I question God. And I'm not talking now about like trying to figure out certain doctrinal things or trying to question how is there pain and suffering in the world. I'm talking like just questioning God. I think we all do it sometime or another, but we must realize, we really must realize who we are versus who God is. We really must realize our place in the world. I mean, many times we might think of things like, I wouldn't believe in a God who would, whatever it might be. Do you realize we don't really have a choice who God is? God is God. And thankfully, praise God, there is a way of salvation. There is a way of eternal life. And thankfully, it's a free gift of salvation. It's not by works. It's, but that's his plan and that's his choice, not mine and not ours. It'd be easy to be discouraged thinking that we are small and that leads to more depression. But I want to encourage you that God does care about you. So realize 2 Peter... Uh, so realize two things. I'll come back to Second Peter in a minute. Realize two things. Firstly, God is God and we are not. Secondly, God does care about you. God does love you. God does want a relationship with you. That's Second Peter 3, 8 through 9. And that's my theme today. We're, we are going to continue our trek through Romans. And I want you to notice those two things. Let me repeat them again. Firstly, God is God and we are not. Secondly, God does care about you. God does love you. God does want a relationship with you. First, in verses 19 through 22 of this passage, hopefully you're all in Romans 9 now. Romans 9, 19 through 22. We see that as a potter creates vessels, God creates nations. As a potter creates vessels, God creates nations. And again, I'm answering the question, can we talk back to God. Who do we think we are? I mean, really, for those of you that are parents and, or those of you that are grandparents, have you ever had it where it's like, you know, your, your child is talking back to you and your child is telling you the way they want it, the way they expect it? And have you ever had that thought like, who do you think you are? I mean, <laughs> you're the child. I'm the parent, you know. I'm the dad. You're the kid. You're the mom. They're the kid. And, and that's, I think, sometimes we need that reminder. Who do we think we are trying to talk back to God? We have to remember our place. God does love us. God does want a relationship with us. But God is supreme. He is Lord and there is no other. So how did we get to this place in Romans? How did we get to Romans chapter 9? You know, In Romans 9, Paul's been writing about God's sovereignty over nations. Some think this chapter is about how God can predestine some individuals for salvation and others not for salvation. And that may be an indirect conclusion, but I think the main theme is God's sovereignty over nations. The main theme of Romans 9 is God's sovereignty over nations. God has a right to do with nations as he pleases. God had a right to predestine and choose Israel over the other Nations and Paul has been writing about why the Jewish people have had a hardness of heart for the gospel. Starting in Romans chapter nine, starting in verses one through five, Paul has been writing about why the Jewish people have rejected the gospel. Why the and Paul has been trying to continually make the case, continue to make the case that God is consistent with His promises. God is being consistent with his promises. God is being consistent to his word. And as we get to the end of Romans chapter 9, we're going to see Paul uh, string together a number of Old Testament quotes and Old Testament prophecies to show that God is being consistent with his promises. God is being consistent with his word. God declared way back in Isaiah 700 years prior to Jesus. That only a remnant of the Jewish people would remain. God even declared that if it were not for him choosing Israel, none would remain. God had declared way back in Hosea and way back in Isaiah that the Gentiles would accept the gospel, that people who are not his people, that'd be the Gentiles, would accept the gospel. God is being consistent with his promises, and that is how Paul is showing it. And how is Paul doing it? He's using the Old Testament. Paul's using the holy scriptures, the word of God, to make his case. In verse 14, Paul began to defend God's justice, and Paul started with the example of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Paul started with the example of Pharaoh. And now Paul will build on that example with more examples of God's sovereignty. Look at verse 19 if you're if you've turned there. Look at verse 19. He says, He says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And and this verse is a rhetorical question. You know, Paul is given the example example of Pharaoh. And this verse is now asking about how we can question God. Who can resist God's will? Who can resist God's uh, providence? In other words, how can God find fault with Pharaoh... If God was governing Pharaoh. And we talked about last week how it was almost as if, and maybe even really, that God turned Pharaoh over to his own ways. Pharaoh had his own hardness of heart. And God used that to glorify his name. Paul is alluding, starting in verse 19 of today's passage. Paul is alluding to Jeremiah chapter 18 verses 1 through 12. In the example of a potter with clay. In Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12... Uh, Jeremiah, the prophet, used the example of a potter with clay. Now look at verse 20, Romans 9:20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Let's put those scriptures together. Now let's read verses 19 and 20 together. You will say to me then, why does he, thus God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? Then verse 20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? This is a very basic analogy. In a good analogy, God created us. God knit us together in our mother's womb. Psalm 139. How can we question God the creator? And this is somewhat a humorous analogy too. I mean, how many, how many of us have built things? Maybe t- taken up painting and painted something or, or built a craft or something like that. And I mean, can you imagine like building a chair and then the chair talks back to you? You built the chair. You sanded it down. You stained it. You took it from the Lowe's or Home Depot or wherever you went. And you got the lumber and you got it ready and you cut it down. And you create that chair. And that chair says, uh, why'd you make it that way? Why'd you make me this way? If that ever happens, I can recommend a few good psychologists for you. But, or we can do a, a cast out a demon. But what is molded? does not speak back to the thing that the person that made it and said why did you make it that way it doesn't work that way god is the creator god is the creator how can we question god the creator john piper shares these differences between god and man listen to this from john piper god is the creator and man is the created god is infinite and man is finite God is utterly self-sufficient, and man is totally dependent on God for everything. Everything. God is all-knowing, and man is little-knowing. God is never erring, never making a mistake, and man is often erring. Therefore, how can we, mere man, presume to object to that God and his will? Think about it. How do we do that? God's a creator. Man is the creative. God hung those stars in the sky, called them all by name. It says it in the the scriptures. God is infinite. Man is finite. God is utterly self-sufficient. Man is totally dependent. Do you realize we are totally dependent upon God for every single thing? Every breath we take is dependent upon God. Look at verse 21. Has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? One vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use. The potter can do what he wants with the clay, correct? Right? I mean, if you are a potter and you're creating something, can you not do whatever you want with the clay, right? Yes? You can say something. It's okay. I'm allowing you. You can say something and be very reverent here. The potter can do what he he wants with the clay. And Paul is comparing God's work with us like a potter with clay. And Paul really is pulling this analogy, pulling this from Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. And So look at, I'm going to quote a source that you may know, Pastor Bobby Murphy again. His message on this passage is helpful. He says, Paul's analogy of the potter and clay in verses 20 through 21 is a hermeneutical key. Now hermeneutical means interpretive. Paul's example of the potter with the clay is... It's the interpretive key. And, and Bobby said, I said he's alluding here to Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12. In that context, God is speaking of nations, not persons. He teaches in verse 6, verse 6 of Jeremiah 18, 12, of Jeremiah 18, in Jeremiah 18, verse 6, he says that he can deal with Israel, and by implications, all nations, however he pleases. Just as a potter can deal with the clay, however he pleases, God can deal with Israel and other nations, however he pleases. And God goes on in verses 7 through 10, this is Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10, to explain how he pleases to deal with nations. God might declare to destroy a nation, but relents if that nation turns from evil. Or God might declare to build up a nation, but will change his mind and not build it up if it turns to evil. The pattern is clear. God can do with nations whatever he wills. What he wills is to build those up that turn from evil and not build those up that turn to evil. God can justly do whatever he wills with nations. And this, consistently with his nature, is what he wills. So that comes from Bobby Murphy. Paul does apply this to individuals as well, though. So I'm going to continue with, some, um, with one more quote from what Pastor Bobby shared on his, in his sermon on Romans 9. Bobby shared, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Individuals deserve nothing from him. And thus, God can do with them whatever he wills. We don't deserve anything from God. It's by his grace and by his mercy that we get the many things we receive. Do we realize that? It's his love. It's his mercy. It's his grace. I know that may come to a shock to you because we are in such an entitlement, happy meal. You deserve a break today. Instant gratification culture. We live that way. Everything is about me. Egocentric. All about us. We don't deserve anything from God. Bobby continues, he says, um, Well, the Bible in verses like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, and 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, tells us what God wills. So I'm going to tell you what God wills. It's that none should perish. God's word tells us what he wills. It's that none should perish. Or to use Paul's terminology in verses 22 through 23, is to have mercy on all individuals and prepare them for glory. It's not to bring his wrath against them and prepare them for destruction. Second Peter 3, 8-9 says that God wills that none should perish. God wants you and me and everyone to turn to him and accept his free gift of salvation and trust in him for eternal life and follow him and live with him. And God wants to give you abundant life. But we only get that through accepting God's way. Our path leads to destruction. God's path, which is the narrow way, leads to eternal life and abundant life. Amen? Amen. Look at verse 22. What if God, designed to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if? So this is an example. Does God have a right to create people, things, or nations to be used for destruction? He's God, right? He can do that. He has that right. That's not in question. What's in question and what what I'm giving the example of is we do see God's will in the word of God, in those passages I just mentioned, that he does want everyone to come to eternal life in him. Remember, in context, though, Paul has been talking about Pharaoh in Egypt. So as a potter controls those vessels, God controls nations. So let's look at verses 23 through 24 now. In verses 23 through 24, it says, In order to make known... Actually, I'm going to go back and read verse 22 with it. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And then verses 23 through 24, In order to make known the riches... Of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul is making the case from the Old Testament, from the Scriptures, from God's nation, from God's nature, from God's nature, to show that God is consistent with his promises, and God has included the Gentiles, which means the nations, the non-Jewish nations. In his plan, in verse twenty-four, Paul connects this with the people he is writing to. God called them, both Jewish people and Gentiles. God called them to be saved in order to show His glory and His mercy. In order to show God's glory and His mercy, He has called people who are non-Jewish to salvation as well as the Jewish people. And praise God for that, because I. Think, most of us are non-Jewish. Most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles, and God has grafted us in. God has included us in his plan. And it's not because we deserve it. It's because of his grace. It's because of his mercy. So we see the example from Hosea in verses 25 through 26. The Old Testament prophet Hosea predicted, predicted that God would not limit his grace to Israel, but would save repenting Gentile peoples. Hosea called these Gentiles children of the living God. Look at verses 25 through 26. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place... Where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. He's talking about Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish people. And right there in Hosea, he was prophesying Gentiles being grafted in. And so Paul is using this scripture to say, God is being consistent. Remember, if we go all the way back to verse, um, verse 7 or verse 6 of Romans 9. He said, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul is showing the word of God has not failed. God has not lied. God has not changed his mind. God is being consistent with his promises. So verse 25 comes from Hosea 2.23. One source shares this. Drawing from Hosea's marriage, Paul compares Gentile salvation to mercy bestowed on an undeserving, adulterous wife. Let me tell you about that real quick because I don't think... Most of us have read Hosea in the last week. It's a little bitty book in the Old Testament. They call them the minor prophets, not because they were less important, but because they wrote less material than the major prophets. And Hosea was told by God to marry a prostitute. And as she continued to be unfaithful to Hosea, God continued to tell Hosea, keep her, take her back, don't send her away. And God compared Hosea and his relationship with his wife to God's relationship with adulterous Israel. And idolatrous Israel. Israel kept uh, straying from God. Israel kept forsaking God. And God kept repeatedly forgiving Israel and taking Israel back. And in this case, in this case, drawing from Hosea's marriage, Paul is comparing Gentile salvation to mercy bestowed on an undeserving, adulterous wife. None of us deserve salvation. And God, in His grace and His mercy, grants it freely to us. Verse 26 comes from Hosea 1.10, and this is an example of God having mercy on all, on, on who he wants to have mercy. So now we're going to see the example of Isaiah, the example from Isaiah. Again, Paul is using all these Old Testament passages to show God is consistent with his promises. So now Paul quotes from Isaiah to demonstrate God's sovereignty concerning Israel. Look at uh, verses 27 through 29. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring. We would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So right there, right there. Isaiah 700 years before Jesus. Isaiah is saying right there. There's only going to be a remnant who who remain. And Isaiah is saying that by God's providence, there is a remnant. If it weren't for God's providence, they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, and they wouldn't even exist anymore. But because of God's predetermined plan, God preserved a remnant of Israelites for the Messiah. So. The first quote in verse 27 is from Isaiah 10, 22. And this is God saying that there are many Israelites and Israel is like the sand of the sea, but most won't be saved. Only a remnant will be saved. And remember the context from the beginning of Romans 9, Paul's been answering the question of why the Jewish people are not responding to the gospel. And then in Romans 11:5, Paul will say that it is true that in this time that only a remnant will be chosen by grace. So Paul's gonna come back to this in Romans chapter in Romans chapter 11. Verse 28 is also a quote from isaiah and in this case isaiah chapter 10 verse 23 in that passage in isaiah god was talking about judgment from the assyrians which was judgment on israel because israel was unfaithful god sent the assyrian country in 721 bc to conquer the northern kingdom of israel and verse 29 comes from isaiah chapter 1 verse 9 and the point is that if the lord did not intervene If the Lord did not intervene to preserve a remnant, there would have been no Israel. So what is the point of all this? In verses 1 through 5, Paul began answering the question of Israel's unbelief. Paul said that he would be accursed for the sake of his brethren the Israelites being saved. Paul said he would rather go to hell so they would be saved. He desperately wanted his ethnic group. He desperately wanted the Israelites to be saved. And Paul is going to continue building on this till chapter 11, where he says that there's a partial hardening, but someday many Israelites will be saved. God is not done with Israel. So Paul's building his case that God can have his way with nations. God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to bring judgment on Egypt and glorify his name in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. God is like a potter working with clay. The nations are the clay. God is the potter. However, God preserved a remnant of Israelites, and he still has a remnant. Let's make some applications. Do we know... Our place. Do we know our place between God and us? Sometime I encourage you to go outside and look at the stars and think of how amazing God's creation is. Go on YouTube and look at the Grand Canyon, or just go to the Grand Canyon. Take me with you. And uh, (laughs) I'm just kidding. You know, go and see how amazing creation is. And God is the creator. Remember that. It is amazing. We must know our place. God is the Lord, He is the creator. We are the creation. We must submit to Him as God. This means that God sets the rules of right and wrong, which are revealed in His Word. I don't set the rules. I don't get the right, and neither do you, and none of us do, to look at things and say, God said it this way, but we're just going to change it because that doesn't work today. No, it it doesn't work that way. God sets right and wrong, not me, not you, not us. We can get a whole committee together. That doesn't give us the right to set right and wrong. God is the Lord. There is no other. Right now, we are in a society trying to choose whatever goes, goes. They're trying to say, if it feels good, do it. They're trying to say that... It, uh, follow your heart, and and you can choose morality. It doesn't work that way. And guess what? It is not working that way right now. We must submit to Him as God. This means we must submit to God's ways. We must submit to God's plan of salvation. John fourteen six. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by Him." We don't get the right to choose a different way. Praise God! There is a way, and it's free for salvation. We must submit to God's Ten Commandments. We don't get to change that. That is God's word. That is God's way. We don't get to change that. We must worship the Lord as God. We must understand that it is God's right to do with creation as he pleases. We must understand that God is to be glorified and exalted. We must worship God for preserving a remnant and grafting the Gentiles in. God could have stuck, kept it with the Jewish people and never declared the gospel to the Gentiles. It's, it would be God's right. He is the Lord and we are not. But he chose to preserve a remnant, have, uh, have Jesus die on the cross for our sins and rise again. And then later on in Galatians 3.28 to say there is no longer Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. Bless you, by the way. And um, Matt, <laughs> he sneezed if you didn't hear that. It is God's way so when i was running i I referenced my second marathon looking at the stars and i was going to run my first marathon and i was in cincinnati waiting on the starting line and unfortunately the way the flying pig that's what they call it the flying pig marathon because cincinnati has a history of hog farming and uh so the way the flying pig marathon does it is if it's your first marathon they made you wear you have this little bib thing you do you put on your t-shirt with a number and a little microchip so that it can track your progress and your time and all that stuff? And, and on the back of it, it said, first-timers, my first, first time in the marathon first time running it. So as I'm finished, as I'm, as I'm waiting on the starting line, we're all ancient anxious to start the race. Some uh, young lady came to me and said, oh, it's your first time. And we started talking and she said, oh, you're going to love it. And then I told her I was a pastor. And she said, well, you know, there's a, a biblical analogy in the marathon. And it's because in the, in the first half of the marathon, the uh, people running the full marathon and the people running the half marathon run together. And then around mile 10, the half marathon people go a certain way, and the full marathon, which is 26.2 miles, go another way. And so at that point, you realize Jesus' words that his way is not easy, <laughs> that the path is narrow for life and the way is wide that leads to death right and at that point you get to say you get to see you know 10,000 people are going this way and 5,000 or whatever are going the other way and it is an interesting analogy and we need to remember God's way is the right way it is a narrow way but it is the right way and it leads to life life eternal and a fuller complete abundant life On September 5, 1977, the Voyager 1 space probe was launched from Cape Canaveral aboard a Titan Cantor rocket. It has been speeding through space at an average speed of 38,000 miles per hour ever since, almost a million miles per day. Voyager 1 is the first spacecraft to travel beyond what they call the heliopause into interstellar space. And NASA continuously calculates its distance from the Earth. As of this writing, Voyager 1 is—I'm not a math person—but I'm hoping I get this number right. 13 trillion no 13 billion 490 thousand. I think no 13. I told you I'm not a math guy. 13 billion 490 million 6,617 miles from Earth and counting. That is pretty amazing, isn't it? That far away. But that is not amazing as you are. Get this. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Listen to this. The Voyager 1 will run out of gas, so to speak, around the year 2025. At that point, it will have traveled more than 15 billion miles. But guess what? That is less than half the length of the DNA strands in your body if they were stretched out end to end. That's powerful. The cumulative length of DNA in all the cells in your body is about twice the diameter of the solar system, over 32 billion miles. In the words of the psalmist, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. So don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. In this amazingly big universe, God cares about us. God cares about us so much that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. So we must realize our place and we must accept him as Lord and Savior. He is God and there is no other and his will is that none perish but all come to salvation. Have you trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior? Are you living for him today? I realize that some of us, some of you might have committed to Jesus years ago but you need to repent. You're living in sin. You need to repent of that. You're not following God. You're not living for him. You're not connected to him. You're living in patterns of sin. And if you're living in patterns of sin, if you're living in unrepentant sin, there is a block between you and Jesus. There's a barrier between you and Jesus. God is holy. He's set apart. He's perfectly pure. And you need to repent of that sin. Some of you might have always believed in Jesus. You're a believer, but you really haven't made him Lord of your life. Today is a day to make him Lord of your life. How do we make him Lord of our life? You've heard me say this many times. We confess we are a sinner in need of a Savior. We believe in Jesus as the one and only Savior. We trust in him and commit to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we wrap up this sermon and today's worship service, those that have not trusted in you as Lord and his Savior will today. If there's people here that need repent of sin. Ongoing sin. Hear their prayer. And Lord God I feel led to. Even give a moment of silence right now. For that repentance. Take a moment before I continue in prayer. And if, you're, if you need to repent to God of anything. Take a moment and repent of that sin. Acknowledge it was wrong and thank God for his forgiveness. He does forgive us when we repent. Lord God, I know the silence is awkward many times. But sometimes we're around so much noise and busyness. We can't hear from you. And we need the Holy Spirit's conviction in our life. We need the Holy Spirit's conviction for sins of commission, things we do that we should not do. Sins of omission, things we don't do that we should do. And one for sure is praying to you and spending time with you and being in a relationship with you. Lord God, continue to convict us to make you Lord of our life to repent of sins and make you Lord and Savior. We thank you, Lord God, that as First John says, you are faithful and just. You do forgive us for our sins. And you do cleanse us. You do cleanse us by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. We thank you. Lord God, I pray the Holy Spirit continues to work on our hearts throughout this week. We pray that, And we thank you, Lord God, for your salvation, for your eternal life, and that you do care about us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand, if you're able, for the closing song, which is going to be Softly and Tenderly, which is a perfect closing song as we talk about Jesus' call on our life. And always the altars are open if the Holy Spirit laid anything on your heart that you need to pray about. Of course, you can always sit and pray in your seats, too.